Hello and welcome to another episode of Impressions of America. I'm Simon and with me as always is Toby. Hi Toby. Hi Simon. Today we are joined all the way from America by Matt Chrisman, who is probably best known from Chapel Trap House, a political podcast which is both hilarious and informative. So Toby and I are grateful that he's slumming it in our show today. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. In this episode, we are going to look at the radical left militant organization, the Weather Underground. The group, who also went by the name of the Weathermen, were, were formed in the late 60s on the campus of the University of Mich- Michigan as part of Students for a Democratic Society, otherwise known as the SDS. The SDS were prevalent in protesting against civil rights violations and fighting for greater social equality, as well as protesting the Vietnam War. The Weather Underground would go on to be labelled a domestic terrorist group by the FBI after a string of bombings against government buildings and banks, and it was because of these extremist acts that they broke away from the SDS. The Weather Underground fought vehemently against black oppression in the United States and the US's presence in, the, in Vietnam, with the group often committing their own acts of uh, domestic terror directly in response to actions carried out by the US government in Asia. The group were also known for Days of Rage, where they led direct action demonstration and acts of violence in Chicago against the police in 1969. As the 1970s went on and the war in Vietnam eventually ended, the group faded from public attention and eventually disbanded. We're going to start the show with some old uh, news clips and interviews, which were brilliantly put together for the Oscar-nominated 2002 documentary by Sam Green and Bill Siegel, titled The Weather Underground. 232 GIs killed and 900 wounded makes one of the heaviest weeks of the Vietnam War. And it is not a week. It is just over two days, the past two days, two of the worst we have known in Vietnam. Hello. I'm going to read a declaration of a state of war. This is the first communication from the weatherman underground. Kids know the lines are drawn. Revolution is touching all of our lives. Within the next 14 days, we will attack a symbol or institution of American injustice. Power belongs to the young people and the black people in this country. The FBI said the Weather Underground organization, which took credit for the bombing, is the same radical group which was responsible for the bombing of the U.S. Capitol in 1971 and the Pentagon in 1972. But federal officials don't really know much about the group, which is believed to have between 20 and 30 members. There's no way to be committed to nonviolence in the middle of the most violent society that history's ever created. I'm not committed to nonviolence in any way. I'm a teacher now in a community college, and um, my students will occasionally bring up the war in Vietnam and ask me what, what my involvement was. And I'll say, well, I helped found an organization whose goal was the violent overthrow of the government of the United States. And people would, my students would look at me as if I'm from another planet. A federal grand jury in Detroit today charged the 13 top leaders of the Weathermen with plotting to bomb public buildings in Chicago, Detroit, New York, and Berkeley, California. The Weathermen are the militant faction of the Students for a Democratic Society. Only one of the 13 is now in custody. Toby, first question to you. 
Can you start by putting into context the state of America, both at home and abroad, during the 60s and 70s, and in particular the violence and discrimination against black people and the war in Vietnam? Well, the weather underground sort of it took hold out of the students for democratic society. In many ways, that these were like people like Mark Rudd, Bernadine Dorn, Bill Ayers. These were the vanguard of the the SDS. They were some of the most sort of charismatic and attractive and interesting, and and some of the best speakers who emerged out of the SDS. But Students for the Democratic Society was all about direct action. You know, it was all about putting your body on the line, protesting, trying to make change in many ways following on from the example set about by the civil rights movement. But as the 60s went on, I mean, many people sort of frame it as the, the, the early 60s being the good 60s, and then you have the, the later 60s, the dark, almost the dark edge of the 60s. As the 60s went on, black people started to feel like, even though they had gotten sort of de facto rights uh, in the South, especially civil rights, they hadn't really established this sort of equality and they they were under immense amounts of uh, repression from the from the government and the police, and that really caused the the rise of the BLA. People like Eldred Cleaver, people like Fred Hampton, they wanted to you know almost like defend themselves through armed means. And I think many people in the student white student democratic movement started to understand that in order to really create change in American society they had to also borrow these methods and this was sort of um also influenced by the sort of the democratic and uh, revolutionary movements outside of the us obviously the vietnam war, war caused this and, and in many ways ho chi minh and the people in the in vietnam really inspired um the weather underground and also in venezuela and also in cuba so this was really an understanding that the methods of the civil rights movement, the methods of the SDS, were no longer um, important, were no longer sort of engines for change in, in American society. So what they really needed to do now was radically changing society through going on the ground and you know, <laughs> at a campaign of, of bombings that were going to, what they were going to do, they were going to sort of heighten the contrast in American society in a way that would bring about this revolution that the underground felt was coming. And Matt, your kind of overall thoughts on the sort of anti-war and uh, social uh, pro-black movements of the 60s and 70s, can you maybe touch on a little bit more about how the, the weather underground sort of fit into the new left and how they did differ to the SDS, as Toby was mentioning? I, I think the best way to think of the weather underground as as uh, an expression of frustration and failure really uh, uh, among certain segment of that movement who were frustrated with the lack of progress that they saw uh, specifically in a situation that to them felt incredibly incredibly urgent uh, uh, by the time that the SDS uh, split between the factions uh, you had seen you were seeing a huge increase in uh bombing and violence in, in north v in in the vietnam war uh and police uh uh in domestically a huge crackdown on uh black militants and, and activists uh and so 
that sense of momentum that might have been present in these movements a few years earlier was curdling into a, a, a deep sense of frustration with the lack of progress with traditional protest. And so some of the people, uh, specifically the, the people who ended up forming uh, the Weather Underground, um, decided that there needed to be a, a, a more aggressive attempt to challenge empire and white supremacy and that uh, mobilization of violence was necessary. Uh, uh, in fact, it was the assassination of Fred Hampton that led the, uh, the Weather Underground to officially declare, to, to issue a official declaration of war against the United States government. The idea being that if, if those were the rules that the, that the state was going to play uh, in preventing change, then they were going to have to be met with a similar force. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it certainly seems that, uh, as you say, they were uh, taking on this ideology of, uh, well, if that's how you're going to conduct business, then I guess that's the way we have to play the game as well. Uh, you just touched on there with regards to white supremacy. Obviously, that, that's a very uh, prominent um, aspect of, of America right now with regards to uh, whether or not that's either coming back or has really come back within the certain parts of American society. Can you just maybe just touch on a little bit as to its prevalence back then and the Ku Klux Klan, for instance? Uh, well, the thing that kind of gets forgotten about in traditional narratives of the uh, civil rights movement is that is that violence... Uh, that had marked the maintenance of white supremacy in the South didn't really go away after the immediately after the signing of the um, the Civil Rights Act and the and the Voting Rights Act. There was actually a spike as a result of that, which makes sense when you see uh, you know uh, a lot of the forces like the Klan uh, feeling like they had to ex be more violent in their uh, attempt to beat back something that was that was threatening their sense of uh, control. So you had clan violence in the South that was, that was very uh, prevalent at that time. Police violence, of course, also at the exact same time. Um, and then in the, in the Northern cities, you had uh, the assassination of Martin Luther King, which led to a massive wave of riots, uh, which sort of were, Presaged by a number of riots in urban areas, starting with Watts in 1960. Uh, I, I, no, the one at Harlem in I think 1962, Watts in 64, uh, then uh, Newark in 67, and uh, Detroit, and then finally this w massive wave of uh, of urban riots in response to the King assassination, which were met with incredible levels of. Um, of violence from police authorities and from military. Uh, the Newark uh, riot in particular, if you do any research on that, is really uh, uh, bone chilling in that uh, there was one night of, of uh, unrest and, and fires and stuff. And then within a few hours of the city being essentially cut off uh, and, and quarantined by uh, the New Jersey uh, National Guard, the Guard and the local police force essentially just started shooting people at random and killed over 30 people. So the context, yeah, of you saw a formal change in, in, the, in terms of 
statutory redress to segregation, but it was unleashing not only a lot of uh, frustration in uh, deprived black communities in the North, but also a very, very violent response from both uh, white supremacist forces, both within the government and without it. Mm. Um, with regards to the, the weather underground, then how would you say there is there an easy way to describe their evolution then from the SDS and whether or not their ideology changed and became more violent as external uh, factors happened with regards to assassinations or as, or as the the war went on and then internal factors such as members going underground did we see that that evolution for the group uh well i mean the thing about SES is that by the late 60s it was racked with contradiction because it was factional uh there were there were a number of different currents within it uh organized around different ideological notions there there were i mean i think a lot of the SDS people uh were in, kind of saw themselves as Maoists, basically, uh, uh, in contrast to more establishment, quote unquote, I guess you say, uh, people within SDS who still wanted to maintain pressure through traditional protest means and through politics. And that was the real basis of the conflict was one of, uh, the, there was an ideological, uh, like I said, there were ideological uh, factions but what uh, the question of tactics is what led to the the real conflict because the different ideologies sort of suggested different tactical movements and eventually the SDS split was motivated largely by a desire uh, on the part of some people who ended up forming the Weather Underground to to change tactics basically to to they looked at the thing is is that they were looking at where how. Uh, empire was being resisted in the rest of the world from Vietnam to Cuba, uh, South America, Africa. Uh, and they were seeing it through these peasant struggles, this insurgent uh, uh, guerrilla uh, movements. And they essentially said, well, if that's what they're doing and it's being real, it's more effective than what we're doing. <laughs> so we should, why don't we follow that model? And that ended up being, uh, the main reason that they that the that the per split became permanent. Yeah. So you have this almost like, yeah, you have the factions and you have the tactics, and then on on a level you have a, a sort of small cadre of people who go underground, like people who are sort of weeded out, depending on their ability to cope with you know taking orders or being hazed or you know their ability to. Uh, whether they wanted to maintain sort of sexual relationships with um, the people they had established relationships with, you know, they had things like smash monogamy, this this whole, whole almost uh, this this whole like orgy of uh, collective uh, <laughs> sexual appetites, which would supposed to which was supposed to remove any types of individual attachments that you had. So this was a quite a difficult and an almost almost sort of cultist and programmatic process that they went through to weed out people. So you had people above ground who had the same ideology and even possessed some of the same tactical instincts, but were not qualified to be, you know, underground as part of the, the weather underground. Hmm. That is interesting that they kind of split there. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, and and it's and it's notable that this is not just an American pro process that the same uh, heightening of violence by a small cadre of uh, activists happened throughout most of the Western world. Mm. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, Red Brigades in Germany, the Red Army faction, or I'm sorry, a Red Army faction in Germany, Red Brigades in Italy, uh, Japanese Red Army. Uh, it was a similar process of 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 one group of sort of ultras responding to what they saw as a worldwide upswing in uh, militancy and, and revolutionary energy in other countries, not being matched by change and progress in their own countries and deciding that, uh, that violence was going to be the catalyst for bringing, as they said, the war home, bringing that revolutionary energy to these core imperial countries. So is it fair to say then that you can't really understand the motivations and the particular actions of the weather on the ground without looking at the, the wider groups throughout the world and the, the wider actions going on across the Yeah, countries? I think that's true. I think Bernadine Dawn says, you know, revolution is gripping all of our lives. There's a feeling that is almost millenarian change is, is, a, is a foot that it's on the, you know, it's on the corner, and uh, everyone's being swept in it. Just um, moving on from that, then, with regards to the weather underground themselves, what were, what was the the makeup of that group? Did they compose of, of more sort of middle class white kids? Um, was that makeup any different from the kind of other aspects of the SDS? And did the makeup of the group affect how they were viewed by people from other leftist groups, whether it be? Uh, more pro-black groups or whether it be other social activist groups? I think you have to start with the idea that towards the end of the 60s, that the civil rights movement had been in many ways a joint movement between sort of black activists and white activists who, you know, put their bodies on, on the line. But towards the end of the 60s, there was this sort of, um, what did I say, balkanization almost. The black activists felt that white activists should uh, organizing their own, you know, cliques, and this was the way to to go about it. So, the Weather Underground sort of learnt from that, and the Weather Underground were, you know, the prime of the SDS. So, they, many of them were graduate students. Many of them, you know, went to Brandeis and Columbia, all these sort of Ivy League colleges. They were, you know, effete middle class people who were sort of living these lives in order to, you know, be part of the revolution. And certainly, it did. Certainly, I mean, there was a constant conversation between them and, and the black movement. And, you know, the, sometimes it was obviously uh, there was mutual respect there, but sometimes it, it got quite difficult. The stories of, um, sort of members of the Black Panthers coming into the Weather Underground <laughs> um, <laughs> rooms and, you know, taking things and beating people up. So there was there was this sort of. There was a mutual uh, relationship between them, certainly, but but then you know sometimes I feel like, because especially in early on, there's this idea, and I think it's pushed by uh, Jake Jacobs, who JJ, who was one of the leaders of the SDS, that the S, um, the Weather Underground really needed to sort of bring the war home and and like inflict violent um, sort of violence on sort of anyone or you know statues or you know. Sort of symbols of American power, and I think that the Black Panthers were always throughout sort of the their arc were always 
in the face of you know the police and always engaged in quite almost explosive engagements with the police but the weather underground sort of moved in and out of that so early on you know that you have the um the townhouse bombing where and the townhouse bombing in Greenwich was an attempt to you know bomb a symbol of sort of american life at, and it was done quite indiscriminately but that kind of action later on became less and less acceptable but so the weather underground's engagement with violence as opposed to the BLA's engagement with, with violence was very much different and i think the weather underground knew that and and felt that and which and in many ways it inspired their dedication and, and in many ways their what shall i say admiration of the black movement constantly do you think that the bombings and acts of violence by the, the weather underground uh were legitimate attempts to stop uh, an unjust and horrific war uh, do you think they thought it would actually stop the war or do you think they were simply move, kind of reacting out of frustration and impulse without maybe a cohesive plan uh, I tend to think that the real motivator, and I, I, and this comes from you know looking at what they did, and also from things that they've said uh, in interviews and stuff, uh, was this sense that they didn't want to f- be complicit in what they saw as a genocide going on. They didn't want to be they they didn't want to be good Germans basically, and mm-hmm. they felt like the only meaningful opposition that you they could make was one that put them in violent uh, uh, legal opposition to the state, put them in danger, uh, put them, put, made them outlaws. Uh, anything less than that, I think, to them was not commensurate with the degree of crime being committed by the state. Uh, I don't, I mean, I think that they had a theory uh, in which these acts would catalyze um, uh, some sort of broader movement, but if they, I, I honestly, I, 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 I think it would, I, I tried to not, I think giving them more credit would be to say that it was more personal expression because I honestly think that if, that that was a delusional belief, frankly, if that was really truly held, if they honestly thought that, that their bombing campaign was going to be some sort of uh, opening salvo of a generalized uprising, that, that that's, that was frankly delusional. Uh, and I think that makes more sense to see them in a context where even if they might have thought this is likely to not succeed, it's still worth doing as an expression of their opposition to the state and what it was doing. Uh, just following on from that, then, do you think the weather underground were? Do you think the, the the acts of violence were ultimately harmful to the the anti-war movement? Do you think it removed legitimacy from from the wider movement? Uh, I mean that I, I don't know. I honestly, I, I, I'm kind of agnostic on that point. I, 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 I'm, I'm comfortable saying it didn't help. I, I could say that. I mm-hmm. think I'm pretty confident that it really <laughs> did accomplish nothing. Uh, but whether there was anything that was going to salvage a movement that at that point was sort of running out of energy, and largely uh, after Nixon ended the draft. Uh, that truly did sort of help take a lot of the wind out of the sails of the anti-war movement because um, the impetus for a lot of young people to protest the war was removed there. The danger of being sent to Vietnam was removed. Mm -hmm. Uh, And also, uh, 
once the war itself ended, uh, or or once once the 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 you know a peace with honor was secured, uh, that did remove. Even though the state was still the state that had just carried out this massive violence and was carrying it out elsewhere, etc., uh, the the impetus for a lot of uh, opposition to the war ended, uh, and without that fuel, it was not really possible to see any way that that the generalized opposition to the war was ever going to happen specifically considering that even at the height of the movement it was still a minority a significant minority of the population who were willing to actively oppose the war in any sense that threatened the prerogatives of the state yeah absolutely um just moving on then again touching on on the wider aspect of this what was the perception of the new left in general in America at this time? Were the weathermen just seen as like the, the tip of the spear as far as the middle America was concerned? Did the middle America see them all as these crazed hippies? I think you have to start with middle America's perception of um, the counterculture, which, because in many ways, Within the sixties, or in in the middle of the sixties, the there was a reaction, sort of reaction to countercultural artifacts. You know, the, the Weather Underground's name comes from a Bob Dylan song that was quite, you know, sort of uh, pragmatically conservative. But if you go to to the the after Vietnam and to, and towards the the seventies, there's a sense in which that mu- much of the countercultural elements are being absorbed by the wider culture so while in the 60s the new the new left and it was in the sense in which it was attached to the counterculture was very much opposed for its you know political beliefs i think parts of the counterculture were absorbed by the the wider culture and i think you could see that in the 70s when the weather underground is trying to appeal to the countercultural elements, so they're they're breaking out people like Timothy Leary from from prison, you know, the, the LSD <laughs> guru, <laughs> and there's a sense in which oh no, this is a uh, the dynamite and dope. This and you know, in in a in a sort of uh, police narrative, Hoover is obviously not very enthused, but there's a sense in which the, the weather underground were desperate, desperate to attach themselves to um, sort of new left archetypes that, and especially the counterculture that was being absorbed. But I don't feel like the politics of the new left was ever absorbed, even though the counterculture was absorbed. Mm. Uh, any thoughts yourself, Matt? Or again, should I move on to the, the next question? Uh, I, I just in terms the, uh, I guess I just want to highlight the degree to which the weather underground, specifically, uh, even more so than the large. Uh, uh, larger anti-war movement and even the more militant e- edges of it was disconnected from any sort of social base. Uh, they were mostly middle-class college kids, so they didn't really have any connection to the working class uh, as such. And their attempts to build any kind of co- organic connection were uh, kind of funny, honestly. Mm. Uh, the, the, the days of rage were really their attempt to do... To to, be, to take the the street demonstrations that had marked most anti-war activism to a higher level of of confrontation, uh, 
but they were uh, less than they had hoped they would be. They didn't spark the, the, the ratcheting up that they had hoped. And then the other uh, thing they did, which I kind of think is is adorable in a way, was they the, one of their recruitment strategies was this thing, these breakouts that they would do where they would go to high schools uh, and yeah, essentially try to out. break the students <laughs> out of the conformity factories that they were within. Uh, and none of those were very successful. And, and it seemed like they were aware of the degree they were isolated, but were completely uncap- incapable of bridging the gap. Yeah, and in many ways, the weather underground will continuously think about the ways they were they were isolated. So they obviously it started with this sort of elite cadre, but then you know after the townhouse, they wrote the new morning address and they talked about how they maybe had failed to attach themselves to an overground mass movement, and then you know at the at the sort of end of the Weather Underground, sort of um, when they are writing things like P- Perry Fryer, which was their, you know, their book, they also noted their failure to attach themselves to a wider mass movement. So it was they were constantly self-critiquing, but in terms of their their achievement, you could see that that they had failed really um, to do that. My uh, favorite. Um... Weather Underground attempted at, to uh, broadcasting themselves was when they were going to high schools, or at least they would get a, a topless woman from their movement to run into high schools shouting the Weather Underground to try and get uh, young uh, young boys and uh, teenage boys to uh, pay attention to the movement. But I don't think it had too much of an impact. And I know. also think like they will always attach themselves to the most marginal uh, sort of sites of American life, like they attached themselves in many ways to the prison movement. The people mm-hmm. like uh, George Jackson, who was a sort of a writer and a sort of quite you know brutal criminal who was in prison, and they would say like, "Oh, the prisoners are the revolutionary um, sort of uh, just key revolutionary element," and they very much supported the Attica um, prison prison riots. But if you if you think about that, think about think about America in the in the 60s and the 70s who was prepared to see prisoners as as this revolutionary element this it was a complete uh, tactically it was a complete revulsion of sort of key points in American life so there was no real touchstones for for, for normal people to attach themselves with really hmm. So outside of uh, protesting I and mean, bombing on behalf of um, stopping the, the Vietnam War, were there any sort of specific actions or specific uh, sort of touchstones they were moving towards as far as the pro-black movement was concerned? Was, was there any specific things they were aiming to achieve in that regard? Well, I think first, you you know, you look at the prisons, you look at their um, sort of, I think in some ways that the BLA did have some cachet with people, especially in New York and Harlem. Sharda Shakur was, was all over the news and she was considered to be this heroine. Um, and, and some blacks did appreciate the fact that you had, and I think it came out of the sort of the Malcolm X, uh, Martin Luther King contrast. You finally, you had, Blacks who, you know, were seeking um, self self self-actualization, self-defense. These things 
were attractive to some blacks. This is why, you know, the the, the um, Martin Luther King, I know the Malcolm X movement had um, so much popularity, especially in some parts of um, the east of America. But I would say that in terms of attaching themselves to blacks, they always, they always sort of fetishize the black movement. You know, they they, they fetishize the marginalized aspects of of uh, black American life at the time. And but I don't know if you could say that they were well known or well appreciated by African Americans. I don't I don't seem to uh, see any indication that that was the case. Do you think any part of their campaign was successful then? Do you think they had successes or was were they legitimately more of just a headline grabber without actual actual achievement? I mean, they got Timothy Leary out of jail, so I guess there's that. <laughs> uh, no, I, I mean, I think it's pretty much it's a failure. I mean, there's nowhere that you could point to that they moved anything forward, changed anything. Uh, I mean, I mean, they... Their emergence is, I think, rightly seen in the in the in the history, historical telling of the anti-war movement as the point when uh, frustration and and uh, infighting broke started to break it down, and and the expressions of violence are are basic, just almost if you wanted to be uncharitable, just sort of the tantrums of kids who weren't getting what they wanted. Uh, by that point, and that that yeah no there was no uh, no their 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 activism was just an expression of impotence really and 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 isolation and as a result it couldn't really have any positive effect. Yeah, and I think that especially early on, and into the bombing of the townhouse, there there was a sense in which that that the, the violence was gratuitous as well you know they, they killed members of um their own whether underground uh cadres of gold robins pe- people like that who just died for nothing and they obviously they figured out that this kind of approach was wrong and they changed their approach they got uh jj out of the weather underground because he had pushed this 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 type of approach and they felt that attacking um, sort of symbols of American life without sort of killing people was uh, a better move. So in, in, ter- in terms of that, if you're evaluating their strategy, looking at, at, at that change, that that was an effective change. And I, 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 I suspect the ability to evade the FBI is curious. I mean, the weather undergrounds, especially people like... Um, um, Bernadine Dawn, they were almost like, you know, like the very chic FBI most wanted uh, it, it, it's, you know, in many ways the web underground is supposed to being a political uh, story or sort of a politically um, successful sort of click, they're, they're much more, I think, uh, an FBI chase story, you know, there's um, various stories of weather underground people, you know walking into stores and and seeing um sort of cars move and being quick on the on the turn to you know hop out of there it's it's a it's it's more of a you know fbi most wanted story and a a story about people being uh, quite 
narcissistic about you know the, their expressions of, of political protest than a real you know sort of tactical um, approach for, for the left to take uh, in, in the late 60s and in the early 70s uh, great um I was gonna move on because uh, we're getting a little bit uh still got a little bit of time but obviously we're getting nearer the end now um before we kind of move back uh start looking at the sort of legacy and how uh whether underground review today toby do you have any other specific questions about the group no i don't i don't think i have other questions okay um when american society kind of looks back on weather underground then how do you think they're seen now and do you think the weather underground have any kind of legitimate um legacy that they've left or are they just some sort of <laughs> crumbling heap of of extremist rabble that didn't really achieve anything and maybe their tactics if nothing else have been discarded by groups that have come later i think for many people the weather underground are quite an interesting story about you know the the fbi aspects they're they're, they're an interesting story for republicans i think um you know, Nixon and Reagan sort of used them and, and thought about them. And they're an interesting story about, you know, the, 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 the dark edge of sort of anti-fascist and anti-imperialist um, left politics in America. But, they, they, you know, like members like Bill Ayers and Bernadine Dorn, it's, it's really curious that they managed to evade the FBI for so long. But I feel like they're seen as much more sort of quirky and interesting characters because of evading the FBI. And they're not really seen as ideologically important figures. I mean, they wrote the Perry Fire book and uh, in really an attempt, a last-ditch attempt to come back, you know, overground because they saw, you know, in the mid-'70s that none of their actions were, you know, paying dividends. And they, their, their book was, you know, a Marxist take. They, they went back. They sort of switched the angles away from imperialism to um, sort of a more Marxist class-based analysis of society. And it was appreciated by, you know, the, it, it was appreciated by the left-wing coffee, coffee shops that it was sent to. But it was, it was always a narrow, um, many was a narrow hobby for, 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 for some people, flirtation with the underground. They had various um, lawyers who would help them, and those people felt quite almost a libidinal feeling of being, you know, excited by the aspects of this, you know, revolutionary group. So it was in many ways a, 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 an exciting and sexy story for, for, for many people, but it's it was never a real, you know, sort of strategy for any you know, viable political movement in, in American life. Do you think in a way then they have instead possibly tainted the left to some degree, at least given the right and those in the establishment, you know, uh, a stick to beat the left with, with regards to turning to violence or being anti-American or whatever that may be? Uh, I mean, uh, they'll do what they're going to do, you know what I mean? And, and <laughs> obviously one of the things that's, that prevents that from happening is just America's general historical amnesia. I, I mean, I don't think if you brought up the Weather Underground, much people would care. And of course, the evidence for that is the fact that 
they tried to the Republicans tried to make a deal a, a big deal of the fact that Barack Obama was a neighbor of uh, Bernadine Dorn and Bill Ayers in Hyde Park, uh, famously. Uh, Sarah Palin saying he palled around with terrorists and uh, nobody gave a shit because <laughs> they were like, who the hell is that guy? Uh, he looks like, he looks like a, a high school guidance counselor. Um, but uh, yeah, so I don't, I don't think that the, it's, there's really any millstone there. I think it's just, they just sort of stand as, as evidence uh, of the general failure of the left to this day to activate a, a meaningful base beyond uh, intellectually radicalized uh, college students. So with regards then to the, the, the pro-left that's um, the, the movements that have come up after, after the 60s and 70s, how do you think that compares uh, to today and, uh, and to those 60s and 70s groups? Are, have we seen a, a change in philosophy? Have we changed seen a change in the in the makeup of the group i you know imagine there's it's expanded if there is any from a, a more uh you know white middle class group to potentially taking on uh people of other uh backgrounds and origins um do we do we see uh a sea change with regards to something like black lives matter etc that that are different to the 60s and 70s or are there similarities and parallels there well i would say that in many ways, the the SDS itself was an expression of a you know it, it was led mostly by it, you know they saw the SDS is um, coming in at the tail end of one generation and then coming into the boomer generation. It was led mostly by a sort of very well educated white middle class uh, kids and especially you know people on the Berkeley campus, which you know turned into almost like a a thief for uh, you know revolutionary um or oratory and 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 sort of like crazy left-wing people but i i feel that today you know i you know i don't know if i'm qualified to say because i mean i, I see the dsa and you know the verso loft people and, and i know that um chapo is, is around that so i don't know if i'm qualified to, to... <laughs> I think there's the same, uh, the largely same dynamic is still uh, in existence. I do think <laughs> that there is a chance, there is an opportunity for 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 things to change. I think you, there are formations that have uh, arisen around things like Black Lives Matter, uh, the fight for fifteen, uh, the, and and more importantly than any of that, a a, a spike in labor militancy. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that that's really where the hope comes from. Is not necessarily the activist groups, which I think are necessary and are doing good, but I think are sort of held captive to that same dynamic that persisted in the 60s. But what we're seeing is, parallel to that, a, an actual spike in labor militancy, which did not happen in the 60s, mm -hmm. and which hopefully will, at some point, there will connective more connective tissues will form between those forces and and the, and the activists. I, I I see that it's it's starting to happen happen on the ground. So I think there is a chance for the the movement to broaden. Uh, the question of whether it will I think is up in the air. Uh, but I mean we've seen in the last two years in this country, the United States, uh, strike activity that has not been seen literally in thirty years. So. I think that is really where the energy is, and that's where the hope uh, is.
Yeah, if you look at this, the 60s, really, it was the go-go 60s. You know, you still had uh, high economic growth under the JFK and, and Lyndon Johnson. So you didn't have this feeling of, of, of economic anxiety among working class people. You know, the, the, the SDS was in many ways a sort of creature of um, quite, I think, imperialist-centered politics. They were people who were looking outside the United States and seeing the effect of, of American power and this idea of American exceptionalism and, and, and how it was oppressing other people. But I think within the, the country, average people were quite well off. And although the Vietnam War, you know, sort of put, put their children into you know, a quite difficult situation. You would see, like, even amongst the, the Democrats, um, many of the leaders of Democrats, the Chicago um, Mayor, Mayor Daley, um, sort of George Meany, people like that, they supported the Vietnam War, and many uh, sort of average people supported the Vietnam War. So it, well, until, you know, it, it started to get more difficult. But then after the, then after the Vietnam War, there was, still was no real cachet in sort of wider left politics in the broader population. Mm. Okay, well, um, all this talk of revolution takes us nicely onto Chapel Trap House. Um, I've recently finished the cha Chapel Guide to Revolution, available in either a book or audio book form. I listened to the audiobook and very good it was, uh, very enjoyable. Uh, I'd like to, to start by asking, uh, which of the chapel team do you think is most likely to sprinter from the, the chapel SDS and form their own 21st century weather underground? Uh, oh, we're all way too lazy for that. that <laughs> uh, no, I, 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 yeah, I, I don't think anyone would because I don't, I think we are all aware of the inherent limitations of that action, honestly. <laughs> I hope we are anyway. <laughs> okay, so it's just going to be Toby by himself then. Fair enough. Um, in the book and on the show, you're very critical of the right for very obvious reasons, but I'd like to touch briefly on your disdain for the Democratic Party and in particular its fear to embrace left-wing policy and its history of propping up the centre-right. Uh, can you just go into a little bit more detail on that? Uh, well, it's uh, the, the Democratic Party is, uh, as has been said the, the, uh, by Kevin Phillips, uh, the second uh, the world's second most enthusiastic capitalist party. Uh, <laughs> and that has been the functional, or that's been the structural impediment to, to leftist movements in this country. One of the most powerful ones uh, in, in its history, really the, the lack of a real uh, responsive labor party, uh, the, 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 this sort of center left coalition party that, uses to varying degrees at different times alliance with labor but is dominated by capitalist interest has uh, been a huge impediment to any kind of change in this country uh, and it, there, it, the only way forward absent the sort of militant violence that the Weather Underground I think uh, showed has uh, <laughs> a very limited utility uh, uh, any kind of mass political pressure system of reform of change, it's going to necessitate the destruction of the Democratic Party as it currently exists, and I think that that is a uh, that needs to be at the forefront of any tactical understanding or strategic understanding of what needs to be done uh, 
in the electoral arena, basically. Like uh, the, the efforts need to be pushed. The electoral efforts, to the degree that people find them to be necessary, uh, need to be in a context of dismantling the Democratic Party as it currently exists. Uh, what, what, how would you think that would take place? You think that the interest groups that today dominate the Dem Democratic Party, but different issue groups and, and things like that, do you, do you think that they would need to come together under a different coalition led by the Labour? Or... Well, I, I, it could happen one of two ways, broadly. There, uh, the the model that a lot of people are taking are 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 going forward with now uh, is a takeover model. is is essentially overwhelming the the structures of the Democratic Party by o organizing their voters who are far to the left generally of the of the uh, establishment of it, mm -hmm. uh, and, and basically making the establishment elements obsolete. Uh, changing one of the big things about that would be changing the not, the uh, uh, the fundraising mechanism, like uh, replacing don uh, donations from corporate interests with small donations from actual voters. Uh, and a lot of people say that that is sort of doomed due to the uh, structural forces the 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 advantages at the structural uh, at the structural level that, that the establishment has and it very well might be the case uh mm -hmm. I, i'm agnostic on it but i think that if the takeover model fails then that would lead to the other inevitably i think hopefully uh would lead to the other uh strategy for uh dismantling the, the current democratic party the replace the the collapse of it and the replacement of it with with an actual uh, labor party, uh, and I see both of those uh, either one is successful or ideally uh, the failure of the first would lead to the second. Uh, and and uh, whether or not that is going to happen, I don't know. But from my perspective, it is the most effective strategy that that exists in the electoral uh, realm right now simply due to the relative weakness and lack of organization of the left organizing through electoral politics to create a actual network of politicized voters as opposed to voters who see voting as sort of a consumer choice uh is is the necessary precondition uh for uh uh altering the electoral framework do you think that if if there was a sort of push towards a, a labor party in America, so that this would be some sort of splinter movement from the Democratic Party, do you think that there would be need to be more of an emphasis? Because you look at the Weather Underground, they put emphasis on imperialism and um, race. Do you think there would need to be more of an emphasis on class in this movement? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's the thing is that America is, is notably class unconscious, and that mm -hmm. has been a hindrance of the left throughout its history, and it certainly was in the 60s. Uh, and that is what... country, as, as people say. Right. I mean, and then the thing is, is that was, that was always sort of illusory and, and obscured relationships to capitalism uh, 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 and the means of production. Mm. Uh, but but it's, uh, it's an ideology that's very persistent. 
And uh, it's being frayed right now just because of the degree of precarity and, and, uh, and, and the, the clear downward trajectory of living standards and, 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 and the, the failure of that. Uh, the collapse of that sort of detente between labor and capital that persisted in the 20th century, uh, that are, that's the model that I think a lot of political, in the, people in the political authority are still subconsciously operating under, even while its material reality is completely cl- crumbling. Uh, and that is the sort of alienating factor that hopefully will give rise to a, a, a greater understanding and awareness of class among people. And that is where the electoral element comes in. That's where campaigns that focus on class, that emphasize class, uh, that organize people as voters around class interest, mm-hmm. that's where that comes in. Um, one thing that was kind of noticeable with the, the GOP on the right, with uh, especially with, with Trump, is that they seem very willing to kind of give up any ideology or any good faith they may have in society in order to win an election. Do you think, similarly on the left, do you think there's an appetite to move further left, but they, they, for whatever reason, stupid or not, don't think they can win an election that way? Or do you think it's kind of a hard-coded ideological thing where they, they simply don't want to move that far left? Oh no, they don't want to win. I mean, I mean they, I'm sorry, they don't want to move. They want to win, but winning is secondary. Uh, there, uh, I, uh, John Schwartz has a concept called the Iron Law of Institutions, which says that within an institutional framework, uh, if you are at the top of the hierarchy of an institution like the Democratic Party, it is more important to you to maintain your position within it than to see it succeed in its endeavors. Mm-hmm. So a Democratic Party that is in the minority but that is still controlled by the people in charge of it now is vastly preferable to a Democratic Party that is winning elections with and, and empowering people who they are not, uh, who have not been suborned to them. So the absolute the, one of the that is a, that is one of the chief uh, uh, dangers and, and, uh, and impediments uh, will be the fact that the Democratic uh, Party itself will absolutely kamikaze into the into a mountain uh, rather than uh, see it taken over. Uh, but that is where the heightening of the contradictions comes in. Mm-hmm. That 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 is what this process will ultimately reveal is bomb, the nature man. of the establishment and its fundamental disjunction between its uh, aims and values and those of its voters. So it's pretty clear then that you're going to be voting for Biden. Um, just how enthusiastic <laughs> are, are you for this presidency then? Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> Diamond Joe just uh, yeah. He's, I mean, it, it's 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 pretty amazing when you see it because he, Biden has chosen to. It, he's not he's not doing the thing that a lot of other established because there's a million people running and a lot of them are clearly establishment Democrats who sort of see a sea change in in the rhetoric around uh, politics and a leftward movement and are trying to pander to it. And Biden, to his credit, and I'm glad, is not. Yeah. He, he is standing for the Democratic Party as it has really existed. Bad. And as a result, that means that the value that that he will be standing for a set of policies and values of the Democratic Party uh, in its establishment, or that that it's within its structure, within its elected officials, within its network of uh, partisans. That's what it actually believes, and he will be giving them voice. And the hope, we'll see if it works. We'll see if there's still the capacity 
for people in this country to engage in politics meaningfully. Uh, I mean, the theory really is that all the gears have been stripped completely and that there is no getting people back uh, engaged in politics, that that, it's too far gone. And that that's a a scary thought, but it's also a real a a real possibility. But if that's not the case, then then the the Biden uh, uh, Bernie contrast uh, is a, a perfect setup to create the kind of, uh, of uh, alienation, uh, 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 contradiction, uh, and, and hopefully fracture that is necessary precondition for electoral change. Uh, did you ever watch 30 Rock, Matt? I don't know. Oh, yeah. I love it. Yes. So it was uh, one of my favorites. Uh, it was an episode where Jack uh, decides to bring in a uh, environmentally friendly but non-judgmental business. Uh, Greenzo. 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 Greenzo is essentially, I think, how Joe Biden sees um, <laughs> the things with regards to that, because he's, you know, like, oh, we want to maybe help the environment a little bit, but we don't want to go too far, and we don't want to alienate the right, and we don't want to alienate big business. So when he was talking about the other day, I did just imagine Greenzo in costume appearing, but then, of course, as the episode goes on, Greenzo goes a bit weather underground and splinters uh, <laughs> off and uh, becomes uh, far more radical than he ever could have imagined. So uh, just, yeah, there's a lovely image of <laughs> Green Zone Biden together as well. Uh, Toby, do you have any more questions, 30 Rock related or not, uh, for Matt? No, I would say that like Matt's um, view of institutions is, is, yeah, is, is really interesting because I, I think about like the way Thomas Kuhn, the, the philosopher of science, thought about like you have an institution and even though ideas are changing or even though you might have a new fact or like there might be, you know, like look at Thomas Piketty and his analysis of in, um, sort of capital revenue and income. You know, these, these things have changed around the institutions of the Democratic Party, but the institutions themselves define what fact is and they feed on themselves. So it takes significant external change to change them. But that's what I think the new left movement is trying to do. Is is or from what I can gauge from from Matt is is trying to do. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Very interesting. Um, yeah, that's <laughs> probably a good place to leave this. I would have thought. Um, Matt, Toby, thank you so much for joining me today. I've it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. I. Uh, please don't forget to uh, subscribe and rate our podcast and you can follow our sister podcast Impression of America Politics um, for all sort of more modern politics related uh, issues Uh, from Matt, Toby and myself thank you very much for listening, goodbye bye